Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. This is a podcast that breaks down interpersonal science into practical and understandable tidbits. And as you listen, I can just imagine little light bulbs of insight appearing above your head. You're going to be surprised and touched at what you learn about yourself as you get more accurate and in-depth view of your mind and your heart, and as you figure out those close to you. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, Sue. I really love the interview with Steve Porges, episode 93 that you guys did on the polyvagal theory and the body and regulation. That was awesome. Is he not a rock star? No, he is. It was great that we were able to get him on the podcast. (laughs) Many people probably followed it and loved it, and yet it's pretty complex information. And part of our point is to make the complex understandable and useful. And although I think that Dr. Porges did a great job at that, what we thought we would do is wrap back around and do a real short segment today just on polyvagal, just the theory itself. What this will do is, for those of you that are new to it, great, you know, obviously, we need to get that introduced because it's an important part of co-regulation and being able to be close to people. But even folks that are familiar with it, you know, I read stuff over and over and over and get stuff out of it because I understand a little more and a little more and a little more each time. So please hang with us and I bet you'll hear something new or hear it in a new way. Right. So when you hear the concept of polyvagal theory, some people's eyes might roll back in the back of their head. So let's make it like, why are we interested in the polyvagal theory? Why so much hype? (laughs) So what's so cool about this theory is it brings the body in related to attachment, related to getting close to one another and regulating one another. And if you're a long follower of this podcast, you know that we've got at this in different ways. We've approached it and think of it like a funnel that we can start on one side of the funnel, but we end up in a similar place and we start over here. So this is another version of that, but it kind of ties it all together. So polyvagal theory is about how our bodies sense danger and threat and respond And we want to know this because if we're unconsciously in danger, we can't learn very well, we can't think, and honestly, we become jerks. (laughs) And I think the the thing that the polyvagal is so important is we think about it through our thought of physiology when we were younger about the fight and flight rule. Like if you were in danger, you're going to either fight or you're going to flee. And the addition of the freeze, I think, especially this past year, we've talked a bit about this in multiple different podcasts when we talked about even the Kavanaugh hearings, and we talked about why is it that sometimes we just shut down, and even though we sense danger, we don't respond. And I think it's so cool. You're right. So polyvagal, basically what Dr. Porges did is we used to think of it as that we had an autonomic nervous system. And you can remember autonomic because it's automatic. (laughs) So it basically covers all the things that our bodies do for us without thinking, blinking, digestion, breathing. Breathing is an interesting one because it's the only one that's automatic that we can manipulate consciously when we want to, which is part of why many interventions go back to mindfulness and breathing. It's in order to access the good part, I'm going to just use the language, the vagus nerve, and begin to bring us back into social engagement. That's one of the reasons breath is so important. But all the other ones are the things that go on automatically, your heart rate and your heartbeat, stuff like that. It used to be, you know, like Anne was just saying, fight, flight. We're either safe or we're running away from the saber-toothed tiger 
or we're punching it in the face. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just outdated now. Right. Because if you think about it, our nervous system has other options related to how we're going to respond besides fight or flee. Why don't we start by talking about the vagus nerve? Our bodies are constantly giving us information about what it really cares about. But in the bottom line is, are we safe or are we in danger? That's the first question that our little noggins are always scanning for outside of our awareness. And again, that's called neuroception. We're receiving information from the environment at all times, and that is regulating ourselves to feel safe or not safe. So I'll get back to the vagus nerve in just a moment. But basically, we have a parasympathetic system. And I want you to remember that by para can mean like paralyzed. (laughs) So that's the break. Think of it as a break. And then we have the sympathetic system. And the sympathetic system means that that's where we get energy. And that's where actually fight and flight are. Often you hear about it when we're in a little nervous or a little danger, and we move to get ourselves back into homeostasis, back into balance. Oh, you know, and if you think about it, we often use examples from prehistoric times or historic times when if something, a saber-toothed tiger is coming for us, we're going to either flee or try to fight it. Well, if you think about it in that example, as humans, neither of those are going to be very effective, right? We're not going to outrun it and we aren't going to fight it. So the fact that our body has these alternate ways of responding and has developed an alternate way of responding would make sense. Well, here's the thing. There's no saber-toothed tigers, but there's a mad spouse (laughs) (laughs) or an angry boss or a disapproving parent. And those are our tigers today, mostly, unless we're talking about something really different. But in a day-to-day Western society, so fight actually looks like defensiveness or blame. And fleeing isn't where you zip, you know, see the back of somebody's head running, but it can be like withdrawing or, you know, maybe physically getting up and leaving the party, you know, stonewalling, stonewalling. So yeah, that's a good point. But going back to the ancient ideas, the reason these are ancient is because, and this is a very important part of polyvagal, is that it is evolutionarily based. So that basically going back to the vagus nerve, that's the largest nerve in the body. And it goes back from an evolutionary standpoint, all the way, all mammals, all vertebrates even, and there's even versions of it in fish. So that's how important of a nerve it is. But it also is how primitive that the system is. And basically what happens is when we're in danger, our brains work in reverse order. (laughs) So when we feel safe, again, we've talked about this in a different way, but our lights are on all the way up to the top of our minds. In other words, our very best part of ourself where we can reflect on other people, have compassion for ourselves and others, all the really good, juicy human stuff. That is related to the vagus nerve as well. That's going to be our best self. So think of it as that's where our hearts are open and we're connected. That's the uh, social engagement system. So I'm beginning to use polyvagal terms. That's social engagement. And I can't remember if I said this example when I was talking to Porges or if it made the cut, but uh, I'll share a quick example that I was on the phone actually with Miss Ann Kelly at one point a little while ago, and I had rushed off the phone for something. And I have no idea because I'm never in a rush, right, Ann? (laughs) And I ended up calling back and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I rushed. And we, I think we were talking about podcasting stuff, actually. I was out walking and I'm listening to this book on tape. And so I'm thinking I did good because I, you know, was a little abrupt. I apologized. Now I'm ready to go listen to my book on tape. But then as I listened, Anne had a little more to say about it, right? Right, right. (laughs) And so... 
You were wanting basically to get back to your book. So you're trying to answer my questions and talk, but I could feel the push and I could feel the rush. And you're like, that's right. That's right. And so what I literally did in my own mind was I was like, okay, social engagement is good. Put the book away. You know what I mean? Like I sort of almost psychologically, physically turned toward her and like gave her all my attention of like, okay, what is it you're saying? You know what I mean? And I settled myself down out of hurry or out of rush and I walked while we were talking, but by the end, she had, you know, I think that worked pretty well, didn't it? Right. I could, I felt the slowdown and it actually created a slowdown in my body. And then I think I became actually more organized and we were able, ironically, to finish what we were talking about more quickly because I stayed more calm and then you listened and then we kind of more naturally got off the phone. Exactly. And you and did good. I see. There you go. <laughs> At the end of the call, I told her that I had gone, Hey, you know what I did? I did social engagement. <laughs> and it really, it actually helped me. This is going to sound rude, but it's not at all. It's like I found the value. Like for me, it became actually quite valuable. Not that I don't value our connection, but in that moment, I was also at valuing getting to my <laughs> book. And so by cueing it into, this is actually an important, like we're actually being very productive by me, slowing down and tuning in and listening and us getting this connection. Really, that's a takeaway that I want everybody to think about is that when we're in that best self, we're usually not in a rush. It's easy to hear our mind. And this is, again, when our vagal nerve is activated is one way to think of it. But it's when our, our whole neuro psychological, biological system is signaling safety. So when that happens, our heart rate slows, our breath is steady, we're able to digest food, and we make eye contact. We have movement in our face so other people can read us because as we get more threatened, our face gets more flat. And a cool thing that Porges talks about is the inner ear. And when we are in the green zone, when we're actually feeling safe and in social engagement system, our ears relax and are able to pick up human voice very, very well. Now, when we're in threat, the opposite happens and they constrict because they're actually listening for high tones and low tones. In other words, they're listening for predators. So that's just one of the ways to begin to think about how much that depending on what your body is telling you, if you're in safety or danger, it affects everything. It affects your perception and how you come across. Right. And through neuroception, it's so important how that's engaging with the other person. So when you were in a hurry. And of course, what's great about this example is that we were on the phone. So I had no idea about the book. I had no idea why I was being rushed. So through my assumptions, I'm hearing your more tense voice, your rush, and then my body starts to feel stressed and starts to like (laughs) misinterpret that what you're saying, maybe you're disagreeing with me or you don't think it's relevant. And really what it is, you were just in a hurry. But instead, I start misinterpreting. So then my body gets all tense and I was registering with you that more threat and more like what I'm saying must not be right. So I'm actually elevating and wanting to talk more about it to explain to you why this is important. Due to the threat that was happening in my ears and my body, I was miscuing you. So it's it's a great example about neuroception because you started to feel tense, I started to feel tense, and I'm the one that started to feel threat. That's what we call neural Wi-Fi. And that it we happens end, through the phone. It happens even through the phone. That's right. And it really, it's probably happening even now as you're listening because your ears are engaged. And I think the more that we can just sort of take our time and let this flow, And for you to know that you can re-listen, that you can, you're not going to miss anything, that there's no stress about this. 
like even just those things, taking a couple of deep breaths with the emphasis on the exhale, even if we were to do that just even right now, it's really fascinating. Can, can we just real quick? Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to just do three breaths. And one more. Now, I wonder if you did that with us, I really wonder if you were able to feel it that fast. And if you can believe our bodies know when we're safe. And so even when we're in danger, but we get with a safe person, it's very quickly begins to recover. Yes, I feel much more relaxed right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true. But basically what's happening, this is one way I've explained it, is that let's say every 20 seconds, our brain does a sweep, like a Hertz sweep, like a sonar, and it's looking for how we're doing. And if our heart is racing, if we're sitting on the edge of our seat, if like our eyes are really focused on something or our ears are really focused on a particular sound, also our oxygen, if we're not breathing deeply, that's going to kick in more stress hormones because it's saying, oh gosh, who's not doing very well? There must be some threat in the environment. So I better shoot out some cortisol, some norepinephrine, adrenaline to help her survive. Change the pitch in your ear to hear the tone. So it's prepping your entire body through that action to pick up what it is in the environment, which as we were talking about earlier, our prep is now our boss or our spouse or our children. So then we're prone then to overread a threat in the environment when it's not. My example, overreading threat in your voice, which you were just wanting to get back to that great book. <laughs> but I overread threat in you and disapproval. And that's a natural thing to do with people when we get stressed. So I love your point to come back to the breathing and why it's so important. That's the one element that we can control. So just slowing that down says, oh, wait, there's not a threat here. We can relax, and so it tunes down the whole system. And what's important, too, about what Anna's saying is that it's not that she was thinking consciously any of these things. What's cool about neuroception is it's all outside of our awareness. I mean, Freud was right about the unconscious, for sure. And it's instantaneous, and it's involuntary. We can't help but notice when somebody, for example, is creepy. <laughs> we can't help it because our body, there's something wrong in their pacing, in their tone. There's something that is off, that is unexpected. And we probably couldn't tell you, you know, maybe eventually you can fill in the words of what it is. But the first thing, it's spontaneous, it's instantaneous, and it's involuntary. And what I'm talking about with that is neuroception and when we're perceiving danger or safety. Let's just walk through the systems really quickly again. Again, used to it was just off or on, automatic nervous system, voluntary nervous system. Now what we know is the parasympathetic has two branches. We've already talked about the vagus nerve. That's the one that we are most familiar with. That's the good one. It's very popular. We talked about it in Porges' interview, but it is just a freeway. It's just a mechanism. There's nothing particularly special about it, except that that is the freeway that information runs from your body to your brain mostly. It's 80% bottom up. And when you're saying bottom up, Sue, can you explain what you mean by that? So when we're talking about the vagus nerve, I mean, it wanders literally all through our viscera, our chest, our vocal cords, our ears, our face, and it's picking up information from our body bottom, and it brings it up to the brain. That's one way. But the other thing is, our brains work bottom up at times too. So for example, if I'm feeling good, and I wasn't in a hurry on our walk, on that walk where I was walking like the top of my mind, I can be thinking and reflecting down. I can think about what's happening. I can learn new things even. 
But if I am under threat, like if I begin to feel you upset with me or something, these are more realistic ways that this actually happens, then the bottom of my brain begins to go up. (laughs) Another way of saying it, the top begins to go offline. And we get more and more primitive, the more danger that we feel. Our choices constrict, our information that's coming in constricts. And so that's also a bottom up. So if we can begin, and so interventions, for example, with trauma, so we've talked about the ventral vagal. Now the dorsal vagal has to do with shutting down. And that is very associated with trauma and life threat. So when you're saying dorsal vagal, can you explain what that means? Yes. And one way to think of it is like ventral vagal, think of the V. And I think of either a mother and a child or a parent and a child chest to chest, and they make a V, (laughs) or even lovers, you know what I mean, kind of holding each other and chest to chest, you make a V. So that's ventral vagal. Let's go to the partner example. But if we're laying back to back, (laughs) think of the dorsal fin on the back of a shark or something. (laughs) So that's dorsal vagal. Basically, it's like that we turn our back meaning that that's the shutdown. That is also involuntary. So a lot of times that can be misinterpreted that somebody's just being a jerk and stop responding. But if we can begin to see that, no, they're, they haven't just, they're not flipping us off and just, they don't care. It's actually that their system has blown a fuse and they really aren't able to process uh, language as easily, certainly aren't able to say a lot about what's going on. But what it will look like is a physical body in collapse. That's an important point because there's a difference in a physiological reaction that is a stonewall. There can be a stonewall that's very sympathetic. That's very, I am intentionally aggressively cutting you off. But there is also dorsal vagal where the individual is actually going more flat and more down. And that actually, depending on your history, can be very threatening. If you see your partner going flat and going down, it can create activity in your body that feels like a threatening, like they're leaving you, they're going away. And especially if you imagine that they're doing that intentionally, it could create more of a feeling of aggression. So there's a difference when a dorsal vagal reaction hits, and that is a reaction that you're going to see somebody go more flat, more immobile, and really feel overwhelmed. It's important to realize that's not a conscious intentional act. And it's more rare than the other two. We typically go back and forth between the sympathetic system and the social engagement system. Sympathetic, again, is the one that is more activating. And again, there's healthy activation. There's, right. Can, we need the sports, sympathetic can be socially engaging. For example, right. Yeah. Things like that. But back to your point, which is really a good take home again, is if somebody actually drops into dorsal vagal, if somebody drops into the parasympathetic, it's associated with disassociation, really checking out, feigning death. And there's literature that shows that people can actually stop their heart when they do this long and hard enough, if they're in enough danger, that it's potentially, it's about life threat. So if you are with someone, and now you know that you're not that scary, let's say, but the body of the person you're with has probably experienced some sort of life threat if they are one that tends to go all the way into parasympathetic shutdown. If they really go into freeze, Probably it's not what's happening now, but the body has learned to do that to protect itself. And I can guarantee you that is not the time to put your hand on your hip and finger wag. It really is actually, it's not an upstairs tantrum. It's a downstairs tantrum, if we want to call it that. That's a seagull term. Those are seagull terms. But that would be a time when either you would give space for them to 
reconstitute, if that made them feel safer, like you don't want to tap on their shell, (laughs) or you sit with them, you hold them, you don't talk a lot, but you get yourself into a safe place so that they can feel safety and begin to come back up the spectrum and get more active. Even being mad and fighting is a better place than dropping into dorsal vagal in the full parasympathetic shutdown. What signs would you look for to know whether somebody's more in a kind of stonewalling versus has dropped into this more primitive state? Well, that's, I think that's a great question. And I think the biggest thing is its level of activity. So can you feel the difference? Like if you're pouting and you're withdrawn, you know what I mean? And you're kind of that your withdrawal is a message to the other person. You know, one of the things I know, if I'm pouting and withdrawing and it's a message, I'm looking for them to come to me. Exactly. I'm waiting to feel like it's hide and seek. (laughs) I'm waiting to have them yeah, to feel like they're going to come to me. And of course, do that apology because they know they're wrong. And they can see (laughs) I'm pouting. So that for that's giving them that opportunity to come to me. So I think if I'm there, I'm aware of the other person, I'm aware of maybe the effect on the other person, I'm anticipating it, or maybe I'm being punitive. Those would be the things that in my own body that I'm aware of. I think that's exactly right. It's an action. You're doing an action, even if that action looks like a withdrawal, or even like cutting somebody off. That would be a version of flight, but not necessarily a collapse. A collapse is really, it's a much more rare thing to happen, fortunately. But when it happens, it's very difficult to get out of. And typically, you can re-engage somebody that's unsympathetic, especially the safer you are like verbally, you can re-engage somebody in sympathetic often. When people go all the way down, that's again where that you have to think of prosody, prosody meaning not what we say, but how we say it. And we are not going to be able to persuade someone to come out of that space if we're still really dysregulated. Because part of what will happen is they're going to know we're dysregulated. And so they know it's not safe to poke their head out. And then that can elevate things. So instead, if you can read it as, oh, they've just done this it's almost like think, and this is actually what it is, a lizard that like flips over on its back and feigns death so that it doesn't get eaten or an armadillo. Or the most common one Not people arm- think, a possum. A possum, yes. I said armadillo. Hey, all those Texans out there. <laughs> I actually meant possum. I, we just saw one not too long ago. And it not only does it feign death, but its teeth stick out and its mouth is half open and its tongue rolls out. I mean, it, that sucker really looks dead. And I can tell you, it didn't think... I'm going to roll over and blah, blah. It just went really fast. So that's the quality when we go into shutdown is it is not voluntary. And that doesn't mean that we can't begin to work on it and make it because it's not fair to the other person. And again, I'm not talking about life threat now, but let's say you're with a partner and you tend to shut all the way down. One, I'm talking to the partner of like help that they're going to need help coming out of it. It doesn't mean that your needs aren't equally valid. It's just we have to do this in order of evolution. (laughs) But then also the person who does drop out really needs to begin to work on it's not actually as dangerous as they feel. They can use their words. They can ask for a moment. They can, you know what I mean? We want to begin to help them not go all the, it's just like disassociation. We learn how to do that out of threat. And then when it's happening all the time, it's too primitive of a defense that we don't want to just keep doing that through our life. And in fact, if you're out there and you recognize this state for yourself, 
that probably is a real indication that you've got some trauma to be worked through. And that would be an indication to, to reach out and get some help and to get some ways of being able to nurture yourself, A, when you go into that state, but more importantly, to recognize, well, not more importantly, but equally important to recognize what's going on and what trauma is actually hitting you and why you're in that state. Because even if we can begin to recognize, oh, I've collapsed, we're already moving out of it because we're turning. Right. Now that's top down. That's cortical thinking of what's happening to our limbic system. And we want to do that. But I guess I also want to just for one second also acknowledge we keep saying that the threat's likely not in the fight you're having. For some, it may be. you know, Right. For, that's right, absolutely true. For some, it may be that in an abusive situation or situation that seems overwhelming, you may be going to that place because that is a survival mechanism for you that fight and flight isn't the most active and shutting down is happening in that moment. So that's also an important thing if you recognize you're doing that, that likely on some level, reaching out and getting some support would be really important. Basically, what we're saying is that trauma is not psychological, it is physiological. That is just such an important point out there. And this is actually quite a serious topic, but I think it's a great example. They recently are doing trainings for how and they're doing it in high schools and at universities about how to deal with active shooters. And it's such a sad thing that we have to do those trainings, but we do. And one of the things they point out, what do you imagine happening if you imagine that level of threat? You're in an environment, an active shooter happens. I realize right now, even this example may make you feel anxious. You assume that you would be in a place of either running, fighting, or fleeing. But actually, a very common response they have studied is this active freeze, and that individuals will freeze in this situation and not move. And those that freeze are in a much more dangerous state. And one of the things they do in this training is they teach how important it is to make yourself breathe. One of the reasons we end up freezing is we quit in that stress response. We quit breathing. And, and then we end up holding our breaths. Yes, and that if you can activate your breathing, tell yourself to activate breathing, like we were mentioning earlier, you're actually then bringing yourself up on a tiny level to be able then to engage in the flea response. So as intense as that is, it's such an important example of what we're talking about. It's such an applied use of the science, but it is so sad. But it's actually really accurate because when we freeze in some predator situations, you know, if you're a deer and you can hide in the bush, that's one thing. But in a situation like this, when there's people that are being hunted, or any kind of abuse that the examples of people freezing and not saying stop, don't know, it's related to this. It's not just their confusion of do they want to be abused. And so there is a freeze response. And that's really important for us to understand when we're understanding any kind of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, or this violence, but also the idea of activating your own breath or activating someone else's breath to where you say, take some breaths, take some breaths. That's really an important activation. And hopefully these theories that we're bringing to you can help you understand that. And no one knows how you would actually respond in a life or death situation. The whole thing is that it's involuntary, but we could begin to work to train ourselves. So I really like the notion of just breathe because that does move us up the brainstem already because two things, one, we're beginning to direct ourselves. So that's top down, but then adding oxygen to our body is activating and it's going to help our thinking come back online and where we can begin to make a little bit more voluntary choices. So that's a fantastic applied example, even though it's just so terrifying and horrible. 
Right. And it kind of sets us up for why we want to talk about our next podcast. One of the ways we're going to use this information is how do you activate the more social engagement? Yes, that is incredibly intense. And one of the things I'm always struck by is how resilient the human body is. And there's this neuropeptide called oxytocin. Basically, we're social animals. We need it. When that gets activated, it's all the good stuff that happens, basically. It's GABA and a whole bunch of really wonderful, feel-good chemicals and hormones. The way that oxytocin gets activated has to do with social engagement. It has to do with proximity. It has to do with connection. So those are the things that we want to steer towards. We are social beings. We are social animals. So we are wired for connection. We truly need it, connecting with ourselves and connecting across. And there's so many different examples about how to induce oxytocin in different ways. And in fact, in our next episode, we're going to be talking about a really particular avenue. So tune in about how to even individually be able to induce your own oxytocin. (laughs) I'm going back to my book that someday I'm going to write that's called Being Your Own Drug Dealer. (laughs) That's a great tease. And it's really true. You guys are going to love the next episode. So we also want to say thank you so much. We have found ways to be able to help support and put on this podcast and bringing out great information, hopefully worldwide. And we cannot tell you how much we appreciate those of you that have taken the time to sign up and go to www.patreon.com backslash Therapist Uncensored and become Patreon members. It's making such a big difference in us being able to produce this. So we want to do a big shout out to any of you out there that feel like this podcast brings something to you in your lives or those you love, please consider joining. And for that, Sue, please do some thank yous for those that have become recent members. We've got a couple of new gold neuro nerds. Thank you very much, Gina Rothermel, Kate Turner, and Suzanne Whitehead. We so appreciate it. In addition, we have got super nerds in general, and this would not happen without every single one of you. Camilla Baird, Yvonne Quinn, Megan Hutchins, Amy Greenfield, Ibisua, and Tomas Tomcat. And for those of you, thank you so much, and those of you that have become, we are going to be doing... Uh, that by the time you listen to this, we would have already done our webinar and it will be evergreen out there. And Patreon members, please jump on because you will, depending on what level, either get a 50% off or it'll be free to you. That's right. And that webinar, in case it may be live, it depends on when this is comes out. But if, if not, like she said, it's evergreen, you can still access it. It's basically using the modern attachment spectrum and we roll in regulatory theory. We roll in more of this biology into the attachment spectrum. And then the fun part is we're going to do just a ton of applied stuff. We're going to really help all our participants try to apply it to your individual lives. All right. So it'd be great. We really appreciate you joining us and we'll see you around the bin. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.